Well, good morning. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to join us here this morning. It is good when the church gathers together uh, to seek and engage God. And, and I think it's good that each one of us is able to come and find a place where we belong and to uh, be able to be a part of something. Uh, so with that, will you please join me as I pray. Dear God, I give you great thanks for this day and your presence in our lives. Um, God, I know sometimes we can, uh, when we're out facing hard things and we, we can put up our defenses and, and things to, to be kind of blocks to protect us, um, Lord, but I pray that this morning as we gather together as your people, I pray we would let down those defenses. God, we would, any walls that we might have up, any things that might be there in place to kind of protect us from things that we might leave up. Um, I pray we would let those things drop down as we come into your presence. Um, Lord, and I do pray that you would move in this space, in our hearts and minds, that you would speak to us as, as you can only when we are gathered together. Um, yeah, Lord, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing this exploration through the book of Acts, this book where we, we learn kind of the history of the early church and the movements uh, that they were making. And I have found this uh, time to be overwhelming, challenging, uh, exhausting, inspiring, eye-opening, spirit-moving, exhilarating, all kinds of things. It's facilitated new visions and dreams for me. The Holy Spirit has moved in ways that it opened my heart and my mind and my body to engage with God in some different ways. Encouraging me to live into the love of God and expressing and living out that reality of that relationship. And throughout this exploration, we've encountered all kinds of things. From starting at the very beginning where Jesus gives this uh, sort of encouragement, this exhortation, this I need you to go and do this, be my, my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he floats up to the sky and the disciples are left standing there until someone comes up and says, why are you staring at the sky? Jesus is not there. Go and wait, and then you will receive power, and you will. So we started there. We've seen these great expressions of God's love lived out in how the followers of Jesus cared for one another. And it says that every need was met, and we were challenged with bringing our needs not just before God, but before one another. So we could see that same thing. We could see God's love expressed in how we care for one another and how we're cared for. We sat with Peter on a rooftop as he encountered the living God in a vision that radically altered his understanding of who God was and what he was up to in the world. We saw that Peter was no longer bound by this specific rule from his past that says certain people are clean and some are unclean. And we saw him go into a, a person's home who, if he would have held to that rule, he never would have gone into that house. Because that person was unclean, that home was unclean. And we saw him go in and minister to some people who ended up becoming followers of Jesus. And we learn that this is often how the kingdom of God works. It's more like a garden that we get to explore, work, and live in than something that we guard and hold back. That the truth is not something we can master and hold down, but something that grows and ultimately shapes us. And this book of Acts has this tension throughout the whole thing of God moving in some amazing ways. People following, people being healed, people being saved, people suffering, people being persecuted, people dying. God moving, and it's this tension back and forth. And last week we saw that this tension is partly due to this 
upside down narratives and stories that we're often told by our culture and by ourselves. That this world is upside down and Jesus comes into it and is rewriting, he's flipping it right side up. And he invites us to follow him. And that means that we're following him into this world that's upside down and working with him as he turns everything right side up. Today we're going to be looking at another passage that is involving Paul being a witness, but it's different than the other ones we've looked at. I think it's going to be helpful for us to discover some of those differences. So we're going to be looking at Acts 17, 16 through 34. If you have your Bible, you can turn there and follow along with me, or you can read it. It'll be up on the screen. Um, I also want to let you know that in your bulletin, there's a blank page, and that's there for you to take notes, draw pictures, whatever you do that helps you stay engaged uh, during this time. So, so feel free to do what you need to with that space. This is Acts 17, 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Well, so what is different about this situation than some of the other ones we have seen Paul in? First of all, some of the other moments we encounter Paul in where he's traveling around, he's actually in a place where he intended to be. Uh, it's not so with Athens. If we go back to the beginning of the chapter, we see that Paul and Silas arrive in Thessalonica, and uh, they start preaching in the synagogues, and a riot happens, which happens a lot to Paul. Um, riots start whenever he shows up. Um, and, uh, and so the people there, they take them in, um, and, uh, and they say, okay, so, so we got to take you in, 
Uh, and then some people come looking for them, the, uh, the people who are, and they're going to try and persecute Paul. They don't like Paul and Silas. And so they take him into hiding. And then those people who take him in say, now you got to get out of here. Right? we got to shuttle you out of town. And so they go to this place called Berea. And in Berea, they meet some people who are really eager to receive their message. And, and it's kind of exciting. Uh, but then the people from Thessalonica who didn't like Paul and were going to persecute him uh, hear that Paul's in Berea. And they go to Berea. And they get the crowds riled up there. And so they're being persecuted there. And then the people in Berea say, now we've got to take you in. And then they shuttle them out again. Except for this time, they take just Paul. And so they take Paul. It says they take him to Athens. Uh, and so this feels a lot like, I think in the Bourne movies, this happens a lot, where he's somewhere and he's got a group of people, and then he's like, okay, i got to go to this country, I don't really know this country, and these people are shuttling me around, or I'm moving people around, and there always seems to be this, I didn't really intend to be here, but I'm going here, I'm taking people with me, um, and, and it feels a lot like that. So if you like the Bourne movies, this is your time to, to dig in. Um, but not only is it a place that Paul didn't plan on being, but he's there alone. This is really different. Lots of the other places, Paul goes with someone or has a crew of people. This one says that the crew he came with, uh, now Timothy and Silas, they're remaining back in Berea, and the people who brought Paul to Athens are supposed to go back and tell them, you need to go meet Paul as soon as you can. Have you ever been somewhere where you didn't exactly know what was going on? Where you felt a little bit off, like, ah, this is a weird town, I'm not really sure, and you're traveling around with a bunch of people, and maybe there's not people hunting you down. But sometimes it, you just feel off, like I'm in this place, I don't really know what's going on, and okay, I'm going, these people are taking me here, and then after that, I think we're going here. Okay, that's, that's sort of a taste of what Paul is dealing with. So while he's there waiting, it says Paul's greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now when the Bible says that Athens was full of idols, it means it was full of idols. Kent Dobson says that there were more idols in Athens than people. Every single building, piece of art, plant, etc. is somehow attached to a deity of some kind. And Paul would have actually been the perfect person to notice this because Paul uh, was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, they're experts at how to live out the law, right? So that's their job, to discerning and living out the law. And when we're talking about the law, there are some different levels um, in, uh, in Israel's law. But when we talk about it, we go right to the Ten Commandments. That's kind of the cornerstone of the law. And when we go to the beginning of the Ten Commandments, this is what we read, starting in Exodus 20, uh, verse 3. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So Paul grew up in that. Paul gave his life to that. And so he finds himself alone in a place he didn't necessarily want to be. And it's evident that not only is the culture completely uh, against what he believes, and it's not just that, but more importantly, it's against Yahweh. It's against God. It's against the very character of God. And so Paul goes to the synagogue to reason with the people there, the Jewish people and the God-fearing Greeks. But the other thing that's different, it says he goes to this place called the marketplace, and this is known as the Agora. And the Agora was this place where, uh, when we think of a marketplace, we think of lots of booths and goods being traded and exchanged, and that was happening, but it was also this place where ideas were exchanged and, and philosophies were talked about, and it was this really cool kind of cultural hub. And when he's there, 
it says that um, there are two, there's Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who begin to debate with Paul because he's there engaging with people. And the Epicureans held to this theory that the world and the gods were really separate from one another. And there was little or no communication between the two. And so it was uh, the goal and the, the best life you could live would be kind of a, a quiet, pain-free life with no big ups and no big downs um, and no disturbing passions or superstitious fears. Um, and it didn't deny the existence of God, but it maintained that God or gods don't really want to have anything to do with us. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that divinity was really close to humanity. In fact, that each person has a divine force that lives within them, but it's really impersonal. It's expressed more as rationality or reason. And so the best life you could live would be to connect with and harness that reason, this inner divine rationality. And so, so those debates are starting with Paul. And um, what we discover is that they didn't really hold Paul in the highest regard. Uh, the NIV says that what they called him is a babbler. Uh, and they're pretty close to this, but that's only part of this word. One of the things we love to do here is like explore the depth of words. And so uh, this word, it, it also is used to describe uh, scavenger birds. Uh, and one of the words they use is gutter sparrow. And I was like, that is a descriptive phrase. Uh, it's a metaphor to describe someone who lounges about in the market picking up substance by whatever things fall off the carts or the booths when people are moving them or setting them up. It's used of parasites, uh, empty talkers, and then babblers. So that's where we get the babbler one. Uh, one scholar said it's like a bird who gathers up a whole bunch of interesting things and then drops most of them on the way back to its nest. And so it's not this, this really high esteemed view that they have of Paul. Um, but that's not so much what, what catches them. What catches them is it says he's talking about foreign gods. And that's what moves them to invite Paul to the court of their Areopagus. Now, here's a picture of the Areopagus. This is, uh, it's called, the Areopagus basically means the hill of Ares. Um, and so that's where we get the name Mars Hill. Ares is a, is a Greek god. Mars is another name for that. And Mars Hill sounds way better than Ares Hill. And so we tend to like to call it that but this is the place where they took Paul and what happened there is there was this court there and their jurisdiction was dealing with all matters of morality and religion and philosophy that was kind of the area and so anytime there was an issue or dispute in that they would take it to this place and the experts here would settle it and so they've brought Paul to this place because he's talking about these other gods uh, and one of the cool things about this is from here, you could look down and see the marketplace where he was. But if you looked across, you could also see the Acropolis, which is a place that had temples for Zeus and Athena and all these other temples and, and stuff there. So it was this really, this whole area is this really rich cultural area that Paul somehow has found himself in. Now, the invitation there is not just one of like, oh, this guy's got some interesting things to say. It's, it's again, it's this thing of he's advocating for foreign gods. Uh, and the reason why that's such a big deal is because it means that he's potentially not buying into the state gods. He's not buying into the gods, the political gods uh, that are in place. N.T. Wright says, in fact, that uh, there was a fundamental misunderstanding of what Paul was saying, uh, which he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And so... Uh, what they were saying is, is that resurrection uh, in the Greek is this word anastasis. And, and, and N.T. Wright uh, posits that there's a possibility that they understood that as a name for another god. 
or goddess. And so Paul is here talking about these two divine entities, Jesus and resurrection, Jesus and anastasis. And they're asking, who are these two gods? What is it that this word scatterer is trying to say? It's the same charge, interestingly enough, that was brought against Socrates in 399 B.C. uh, that they killed him for. And at this point, they're not ready to kill Paul, um, but they're investigating. They're curious. What is this person saying? And so they bring him to the highest court that is going to deal with these things. So what does Paul do? How's Paul going to respond to this? He says, people of Athens... I see in every way you stand in opposition to God. I see that you are unclean. And it's taking everything in me to keep me from just bolting from this place and asking God to rain down fire on you. Repent. No. Paul says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. He says, you don't even know what you worship. But I have some things to say about that. Paul starts in a place where he finds something good in these Greeks. He says, I see that you're so religious that you're worshiping an unknown God, something that is beyond you that you don't fully know how to name. I've been there. I might have some insight into that. He sees that all these people are on a journey. And all these people are encountering and living in God's presence and in God's truth. Because God's truth is all around. I believe that all truth is God's truth. It doesn't matter where it shows up because I believe God is working in all places. And so if God is working over here, his truth might show up in this way. And over here, it might show up in this way. And we are called to key into that. This is not just some kind of, I found a connection point. Like, I have to kind of fake it. Like, uh, I got to find some way to connect so I can slip the gospel in on them. Paul is acknowledging legitimate goodness in them. I recently heard a talk where someone was talking about um, uh, attention deficit disorder. Uh, and the speaker uh, had, uh, had been diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia. He's now a doctor. Um, and his experience and the historical research he did revealed that uh, the way that people who have been diagnosed with ADD, ADHD have typically been treated is, is an issue of effort and morality. That what happens is, is uh, if a person is unable to, to stay focused and do certain work, particularly in school, um, that they're labeled as lazy. They're labeled as, as, you just need to work harder. And then what happens is this cycle of kind of punishment. Because if you're not working hard enough and I, for some reason, can't encourage you to work hard enough, then what I have to do is punish you for not working hard enough. But that doesn't work because the, the actual work can't get done. And so then what happens is this shaming starts to happen. And then you have this very brutal external and internal cycle of punishment where you know, I can't do the work, so you're mad at me and you're punishing me. I feel shame. I can't do the work. I punish myself, and it just keeps facilitating and turning on itself. Well, so this person, this man became a doctor who works with people who have been diagnosed with ADHD. And he's telling the story about this boy who was terrified. Came in, received the diagnosis, and was just like shaking with fear because of his own experiences of his friends who have experienced it and diagnosed with it and how he's seen other people treat them. And so the doctor sat him down and said, hey, I've got great news for you. And the boy was like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, no, listen to me. I have great news for you. He said, do you know what a Ferrari is? He said, yeah, Ferraris are like the best, coolest, fastest cars. He's like, yeah, 
your brain is a Ferrari. And the boy was like, what? And he's like, yeah, no, absolutely. The thing is, is um, do Ferraris go fast? He's like, yeah, they go real fast. He's like, do Ferraris need brakes? He's like, oh, yeah, Ferraris need brakes. He's like, what we need is to kind of help you figure out how to use your brakes. And the kid was like, wait, wait, my brain's like a Ferrari? He's like, yeah. And the boy was like, well, if I don't have brakes, and because and he, he knew this, he sensed it. He's like, if a Ferrari doesn't have brakes, it kind of can go out of control sometimes. It can kind of go really fast and not know how to stop. And the doctor was like, yeah. And the boy said, but a Ferrari, if a driver knows how to use his brakes, then he can win races. And the doctor was like, exactly. When I was training in the martial arts in high school, some of you know I have a martial arts school now, but when I was training in high school, there was a, a, another boy who was several years behind me. He was just entering middle school. And at the time, I had no concept for, for, for attention deficit disorder or anything like that. My instructor didn't really have that, but he could realize something was going on. And what he told this boy was he said, you know, you're, you're like a fire hose. You know what a fire hose is? He's like, yeah, a big hose. You used to put out fires. He's like, yeah. But if, if there's no one holding that fire hose, it just spins all around. And he's like, so we just got to help you focus that. And the boy was like, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying, like, I'm meant to do something good, like put out a fire? And my instructor was like, yeah. And, and, and this boy had just never had that message reinforced in him. Now, in both of these stories, there is a complete acknowledgement that there are challenges that exist with being diagnosed and having attention deficit order. But they start from a point of strength, not a point of deficit, which points out the, the way that's even named. Who tells the story right now that you and I are not good enough? Who tells the story that we don't have enough? That we can't be good enough? I think lots of times throughout history, the church has told that story. Right now, that's the world. That's the culture that tells us it's that. Is it true that I can't be righteous on my own? Yes, absolutely. Is it true that sin has distanced me from God in a way that I can't bridge that distance on my own? Yes. But the good news is, one, that we have help, and two, we start from a point of being made in God's image. That's a good thing. We start from a place of strength, not a place of like, we're so ugly and we're so horrible, right? It's no, you are beloved, and so God's going to come and help. The world's good news, keep buying these products. Keep buying these things or buy into this or that philosophy. Recreate yourself on Facebook every year as you get older and have to change and try to appear that you're something you're not instead of being transformed in the presence of the living God. Paul isn't making something up here and saying, uh, okay, so I was told in, in my classes that the, the best way to confront someone is you tell them something positive first so let me see, um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you guys are religious, so now I can come in and get the sting in. No, Paul has compassion on them. That is why, in my mind, this turns from what we call kind of a turn and burn message, where it's straight to like, yeah, this whole place should burn, you guys need to get out, to, oh, I see, I know, I've been on a journey myself, and things didn't go how I expected them to. So I see you guys are working at this. I see you're all trying, and you're reaching out, doing the exact thing that God has intended to do, is to reach out and try to find him, and you just need to take a couple more steps. Because Paul's been transformed by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. 
He's been shaped by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And his understanding and his relationship to the living God was radically changed through that to the point where he can now see things differently. And we see it right here. Paul even goes to the extent of using their own poetry. Not to say, like, again, here's a clever way I can connect, but to say, no, you actually get this. You just keep moving with that. I recently heard this guy, Alan Hirsch, speaking about people giving us the keys to their heart. And when he did this, he told uh, a story about his father. He said his dad was superstitious and, and believed a lot of what he called pop religion, that kind of anything that came up, he would, he would well, what is this? And, da, 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 da. And, uh, and he said one time he asked his son about the staff and the rod uh, in Psalm 23 and ideas about being a shepherd. And, uh, and so he told him about it, and his dad said, no, no, that's, that's alien technology that was given to them, and it looks like this, and it gives them power over people uh, and all this stuff. And, and he just got exhausted with these conversations with his dad. So as his dad was getting older, he, uh, <coughs> he was getting sick uh, and dying, and it got to the point where they, they called uh, this guy, Alan, and his brother to go and be with uh, his dad. His life was coming to an end. And it's to the point where he's, he's not able to respond to, to, to things anymore. And so the brother says to this guy, Alan, he says, hey, why don't, why don't we read some scripture or pray or something? Um, and he's like, okay, well, well what? And, he's, and, and the brother says, why don't you read that psalm dad was always giving you a hard time about? Psalm 23, he's like, I don't want to read that psalm, but he did anyway. And when he got to the verse that said, your rod and your staff comfort me, his dad taps. And he said, in that moment, I realized, as difficult as it was, my dad had given me the keys to his heart. There was something through that. And I even struggle using the word keys because it feels like a tool, something I'm used to manipulate someone. So I'm going to change that to like kind of open a pathway, right, that, that that his father kind of showed him, here's the path. If you want to come and be with me, here's a path you can take to do that. Because a path, we, we walk the way the path tells us. And I don't, I don't like the idea of kind of like, I'm going to have this key that I can force to open something, uh, even if someone gives it. So I want to use that word path. But people are, are opening up these pathways to their hearts. And we often see them as like, Oh, it's this thing that makes me crazy about you. It's this thing I wish you would stop. But we need to honor that in the people, the people that we live with, the people we share life with. Because when we name those things as something good, we tell that person that the creator God exists and has made you and you have his nature, this imprint on you and that there's goodness in you and you're, you're actively actually working to, to bring redemption about in the world. So what Alan Hirsch said is that we need to have soft eyes. Like in order to be a good detective, you have to have soft eyes. If you key in too much on just one thing, you're going to miss all the other things. And so when we're interacting with people, when we're engaging with people, even in places we didn't plan on being, when we're alone with a bunch of people who don't look at us very highly, we have to have soft eyes. Otherwise we miss things. Hirsch also went on to say that Sadly, religious people, and particularly with Christians, are not known uh, are known as being answer people, not listeners, observers, and question askers. So we don't have soft eyes. Now, granted, Paul does come in with some answers, but he's done some investigating. He's been in the synagogue. He's been in the marketplace. He's been having conversations. He's been interacting with people. 
And he's learned some things. And so Paul can answer a question like, what is good news for these people who believe that if God exists, he's either very distant or super impersonal? And we see that through those conversations, Paul actually does get to their idols, and he does say repent, but the way he does it is based on a different conversation. Because he says, look, if your gods are distant and personal, of course you're going to make idols to remember them, to be close to them. If your God is already cold and lifeless and just rational, of course you're going to make images of them made out of things like stone and gold, right? Because they're cold and lifeless also. So Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He's, he's close. He's paid attention. Detail things. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any of us. Though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he says, we are his children. We are God's children. And God has been reaching out to us in the hopes that we would reach out to God. And Paul says, and you have made some headway. You're getting there. God's not distant distant from us for it's in him that we live and move and have his being and he is like our parent god is close he is personal and intimate and so you've gotten there now we just need to take this next step and so it's out of that place that he offers an invitation to repent therefore since we are god's children we don't need idols in fact in the past god overlooked this but now he commands that we turn to him we can know him and we don't need idols and he talks about Jesus, and through this one man, God's going to judge, and he's given uh, Jesus as this proof in his, in his resurrection from the dead. And we hear that some grumbled at that and sneered at that, but some received and believed. And that the point is, is that we see how Paul responds. We see that he's observant. He has soft eyes to the culture and the people. He honors the good work that is happening as he recognizes they're trying to figure out. They're trying to seek God. They're doing exactly what he talks about. And then he speaks about repentance. Then he speaks about turning, allowing a new understanding of God to move in and shape and transform them. I don't know about you, but I, uh, this is really, really hard for us. And it's extremely important for us to do. Um, if, if any of you have watched any of the presidential debates, I remember that at the end of the second one, uh, they had kind of the town hall setting, and someone asked the question, can, can you each take a moment and say something good about the other candidate? And there was this great look of astonishment and deep concern on their faces, like, oh, I don't know, because what you've just act, asked is, I am this hurtling steam engine moving this way. You haven't asked me to stop. You haven't asked me to slow down and stop. You haven't asked me to stop and then put it in reverse. You have asked me to instantaneously flip this train around on the tracks and go the opposite direction that I'm heading because everything in my mind and heart right now is set on tearing that other person down. I don't know if I can do that. Rich, a couple weeks ago, talked about difference between being a guard and a gardener 
But when you're guarding, you're on watch for the enemy. You look for the wrong and correct it. And, and talking about truth and the kingdom of God and how we kind of try to guard it and protect it and keep the bad things out. But in doing so, we also try to hem it in so we kind of know what's happening with it. And in some ways, it's true. We do need to be on the lookout for things. What's harming people, what's isolating people, what's shaming people, what is damaging creation. We need to work against those things. But when you garden, you're looking for growth. How many of you, either as kids or those of you who have kids of your own, had this experiment happen? You planted a bean sprout in a styrofoam cup with a little bit of dirt in there, right? Anyone? Okay, hopefully someone. Okay. If you're like me, what I did right after that was check it about 10 times every hour to see, did a piece of dirt move? Something, could, I, could I see something green in there? Maybe I need to move it over an inch. Maybe I need to water it more. All I was concerned about was growth. I wasn't looking at, at you know, I, there's just this different way of looking about it. And when we think this way about the kingdom, when we're focused and looking for the growth and not so much on what is wrong, what do I need to, and instead what is good, it's very different. The thing about this garden image that I think is fantastic is that we are also part of the garden we are part of the kingdom of God we are moving and growing and God is the gardener and we need to realize and see that in everybody that God I believe is moving in the heart of every single person that exists and like Paul we may find ourselves in a place where we didn't expect but what do we do with that Paul takes time he evaluates has conversations, carries on the mission to be Christ's witnesses anywhere and everywhere and in every situation he finds himself in. Quickly, one of the things I am excited about for our church right now is, is the question, what's next? Um, I feel like um, uh, for the past couple months, uh, showing up here on Sunday, I kind of have this different space I'm in where I'm like, whoa, God, what's next? What are you going to do today? Right? We have people giving words, people having visions, people reading scriptures, people praying during worship, which hasn't happened in a long time here. The Spirit's moving each day, each Sunday. I'm like, what's next? What are you going to do? How are we going to hear from you today? Right? And so there's this movement. There's also this outward movement, right, where a lot of us are tired of hearing people up here say, man, the way we've consistently reached out to people over the past five years is through our sandwich boards. And I feel like people are saying, you know what, I'm tired of you saying that. I'm not going to let that be true anymore. We're going to go, and I hear stories about people talking to their friends, people sharing with their neighbors, people loving the people around them. And I want to know what's next. I want to know if we'll be like Paul, that we kind of find ourselves maybe like, oh, I didn't expect to be asking what next. I kind of got used to maybe it just seeming like kind of the status quo, and I kind of liked it that way. But what is God going to do next in this neighborhood, in our city? I don't know. But I'm excited to know. I'm excited to be here with you and discover those things. Uh, if you would, take out your connection cards. I have a couple of questions I'd like you to think about. And if you want to write your answers on those connection cards and put those in the wooden boxes on your way out, this would be fantastic. Um, worship team, you can go ahead and come back up. The first question is, uh, where are you? Where do you find yourself? You could be like Paul and feel like, yep, I'm in a place I didn't plan on being. I don't really know anybody. Uh, and, and it just feels weird. When I thought about this, uh, the things that came to mind were more uh, relationships, so husband, father, friend, pastor, all this kind of stuff, neighbor, uh, 
so you might put some titles on it. That might help you uh, identify uh, where you find yourself in life. The next question, who, if anyone, are the other people in that place with you? Again, you might find that you're like Paul, and you might say, I feel pretty alone where I'm at right now. I don't really have other people with me. Um, and so, so that may be where you're at. Uh, some other it might be spouse, kids, coworkers, friends, church, followers of Jesus, people not following Jesus. Uh, who are the other people in that place with you? Uh, third, what good thing can you identify about the people with you? What is one good thing you can identify, whether it's in your family, the place you work? What is one good thing you see happening in those people? Uh, and then uh, fourth, uh, this week, can you tell them that good thing you see in them? This is kind of a challenge for us to, to take. Can you find someone that you can say one good thing you see going on in their life? And then just see what happens with that. See if any growth or movement happens. Wait like that kid over that little plant. Uh, so let's pray, and then we will uh, continue in our worship song. Dear Jesus, again, I give you great thanks for this time. Um, God, this, this, this reality that, that your truth is all around us, God, that you're working in every place, in every situation, and your call is for us to go and be a witness to you in those places. So the people experiencing those things, just like Paul can show up and say, oh yeah, so you guys had, there's some movement here, right? And, and, and the Lord's here, and I see it now. Now I'm going to try to watch that grow. I'm going to partner with Jesus and see what happens here. Pray we would be like that, God. Pray we would go into the places where you've called us and we would be light and life and we would be helpful and we would be ministering to the people around us. I pray that when we're here together, when we see this growth and the movement of the Spirit happening, we would be like, ooh, what's that? Right? The Spirit's moving. I want to hear. What's he saying? Let's move. Let's go. Right? And so, and so I pray you would just help us in these areas, God. You would help us to move into the what's next. Um, yeah, God, and, and I, I just pray that we would go boldly. And I pray all this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?